When have you met somebody whose life was radically changed? Especially if it was radically changed by Jesus. They lived a life of sin and self. Maybe addiction was what kept them down. Maybe it was abuse and bearing the scars of their past. Maybe it was all the above. Yet then they met Jesus and they were set free. They were changed. They were different. And maybe it's you. You grew up in the church like me and you didn't live a terrible life and things were relatively easy for you and you got saved at a younger age. But somewhere along the way you wandered away or somewhere along the way you had habits and sins form and somewhere along the way then you had a surrender where there was a change and your life was different from that point forward. When that sort of transformation, a Holy Spirit, God ordained, they couldn't do it on their own transformation takes place, people want to talk about it. They want to share the good news of what happened in their life, that God is still in the miracle business, that they are different than they were before. And I would say to us, he's still in that business, but he's waiting on us to persist to pray. He's waiting on us to surrender sin and self. He's waiting on us. Good news is not hard to share. It's amazing. It's transformative. It's exciting. But sometimes those of us who are around it so much and know Jesus so well forget how good the good news is. We need to get back to praying for, imagining, dreaming of, and asking God to change lives of people we know. We're talking about our fifth value today, and that is gospel sharing. And we'll take that from the scripture, 2 Peter 3, 1 and following the entire chapter. If you haven't already turned in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, I'd ask you to do so now. And we consider some motivation. Why would we share the gospel? Why would we tell others the good news of Jesus? Well, this passage of Scripture speaks to us about some whys. That God is patient, that God is short, that God doesn't desire anyone to perish eternally separated from him in hell. And it's our job as believers in Jesus, though God is sovereign and can use whatever means he desires, it's our job to partner with him to share the good news with others. We've got our value, and we'll put that on the screen. And it says that rejoicing in our personal relationships with God, we will share the good news of Jesus. That's the gospel. Gospel means good news. With others and serve them in his name. God's desire is that all people would come to a saving relationship with him. You've got three scriptures referenced there, one of which we're going to use in its entirety and context today. So your first question that we need to answer today, and the first point on your outline, is why did Peter write this letter? Why did Peter write this letter? What was it that... Peter wrote about or had a desire to write this letter, and then he summarizes that in verses 1 and 2. Well, let's turn to our scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, 
He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. We know there's first Peter. It's in our Bibles as such. This one's called second Peter. And I've written both of them. Oh, both have the same purpose. Here it comes as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The NLT says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. It's translated also in chapter 1, verse 13, as to refresh your memory. I want to remind you of something you already have heard, something you already know, and and that's why I'm writing you this letter. Let's go on, verse 2. In the past, by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior, through your apostles. Okay, that's what he wants to remind you of. The things written in the past by the prophets, the things written in the past and given by the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's saying these are the things you need to be reminded of, these commandments of how we're supposed to live. So when we ask that question, why did Peter write this letter? There's one simple answer there, and those of you that like to fill in the blanks ahead of time, you rascals, I know you're out there. Not looking at anybody in particular, Carl Brown. The answer is to remind us of God's Word. Peter wrote this book, 2 Peter. He wrote his first book, 1 Peter, to remind his readers then and to remind us today of God's Word, of God's commands, of what God calls us to do, of how God desires us to live, to tell us a story. You've had that opportunity when you're sitting with your child, and like I sat here at Christmas time. And you sit with your child and you read a familiar storybook. You know, the ones when they're really little and it's the cardboard kind of book with not too many words on the pages. And you've read it to your child dozens of times, hundreds of times, but your child says to you, tell it to me again, Daddy. Tell it again, Daddy. Because they love the story. They know what's going to happen. But it's something about the way you read it. It's something about being close with one another. And it's that shared experience. And I think Peter has that in mind here. He says, I'm going to tell it to you again. The story of Jesus is so good. The way he changes lives. The miracles he did when he was alive. Raising people from the dead. Walking on water. Healing people. Forgiving them of their sins. Those stories are so good. I want you to be reminded of them all over again. Tell it to me again. Mama, tell me again, Daddy. Why do we need to be reminded? Well, sometimes we forget. Why do we need to be reminded? Sometimes we're still figuring things out. We love what it means. We love the person telling it to us. And as we engage God's word regularly as believers in Jesus, we hear it all over again, don't we? Every time you open God's word, every time you push play on version or your Bible on tape, if you've still got one of those, you hear God's word all over again and you're reminded of the stories of God's love, the stories of God's sovereignty, the stories of God's power, the stories of God's transformation in your life. It makes all the difference in the world Which leads us to our second question today. 
The first question is, why did Peter write this letter? He answered that in verses 1 and 2. But the second question is, what will be wrong in the last days? What's going to be wrong in the last days? Because Peter now goes from, here's the reason I wrote this, to there's a purpose I wrote you these things in 1 Peter. There's purpose I wrote you the things in 2 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2. And here's what I'm going to tell you the purpose is. The ultimate reason I'm writing you the things in these two letters, 1 and 2 Peter, comes right here. He's going to tell us what's going to be wrong in the last days. So 2 Peter 3, verse 3, we'll put the scripture on the screen. You can look in your own Bible. My Bible, NIV 84, says, First of all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now, we don't use the word scoffers very often these days. But scoffers literally means those who deny biblical truth, the context that he's using it here. And he talks about how they're living ungodly lives. And he's referred to those type folks earlier in 1 Peter and 2 Peter as well. Notice as he goes on in verse 4. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, they're making fun of believers in Jesus. And they're saying, oh, you said there's going to be a second coming. There hasn't been yet. People have been talking about this for even when our fathers and when we were little kids, you guys are just telling a bunch of baloney. But, verse 5, always pay attention to the but. But they deliberately forget That long ago, by God's words, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So they know it, but they're ignoring it. They deliberately forget. Let's go on in verse 6 and 7. Peter making his argument here. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly man. Peter's saying, you know this stuff. You know what happened then, and you know what's prophesied that's going to happen then. The world was destroyed by water in the past. The world will be destroyed by fire in the future, and they're deliberately ignoring it. Let's see if I can do this without dropping my iPad and my Bible. Once upon a time when I lived in Africa, I was in a game reserve in Botswana. And I came upon an ostrich, a daddy ostrich, on his nest. When the daddy ostrich saw me approaching him in my little Toyota Corolla, he decided he would hide from me behind a tree about as big as this pole. And he had his head right here, and he would look around like this, and he'd look around like this. And I'm thinking, stupid ostrich, you're kind of thick, man. You stick out on either side of the skinny little tree. You can't hide from me. We kind of do that with God's word, don't we? It's right there in front of us. Thank you very much. But we deliberately ignore it. We hide from it. We think God's word can't find us out. That God's word doesn't search the deep parts of our life and expose our sin and sear and get a hold of our conscience. But it does. Immaturity, friends, has a way of ignoring the truth. Sinfulness, friends, has a way of ignoring the truth. When you become mature, you grow up 
chronologically. We hope you mature relationally and spiritually. But when you grow in maturity, you can't ignore the truth anymore. You have to say, that's truth, whether I like it or not. My life needs to adjust to the truth because I certainly can't change the truth. Immaturity has a way of ignoring the truth, but maturity has a way, whether we like it or not, of adjusting our lives to the truth. Let's go on with this passage of Scripture. We've got a third question. And that third question that we're going to put on the screen there is, why hasn't the day of the Lord arrived? Now, you notice we've capitalized D and L there. Lord Jesus, of course, you'd expect to be capitalized, but the day of the Lord. We're speaking about a specific day, and that's what Peter is speaking about here. And that is the day in which Christ returns, and boom, the eastern sky opens up, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and all of us that know Christ will be raptured away, and everybody else is going to be sitting here going, whoa, what happened here? You know, one of my best pranks ever. I used to run home on Wednesday nights when I was a runner, um, and, uh, you know, I would take off my regular clothes in my office and put on my running clothes. And Mary Duncan, who was our office manager at the time, suggested to me, you know, you ought to prank Michael Allen, who was our custodian at the time. Michael was a sweet fellow, but a little bit gullible at times. So I told her one Wednesday, Mary, I'm going to do it. I'm going to prank Michael. So after I took off my regular clothes and put on my running clothes, I put my regular clothes in my chair with my sleeve out as if it was holding on to the mouse. I, and, you know, my watch right there, my glasses I even let fall down. I put my socks in my shoes. I even put my undies in my pants, put my belt back on my pants, tucked everything in right, and left it as if I just shoom, got evaporated right out of my clothes. The next morning, as the story goes, Pastor Larry was already at work in his office, had his door closed. He heard Michael come in. Larry knew that I was pranking Michael, and Larry had already looked and saw the imitation rapture clothing in the chair. He said, he heard, I heard your door open. Then I heard Larry go, or Michael go, Larry! Larry said, I just kept quiet. Michael ran back the hall, and you're still here. But then he said, you know, I didn't know about me and I didn't know about Larry. I called Joanne because I figured if anybody was going to get raptured, it was Joanne. Let... <laughs> that Larry and I might get left. We know there's going to be a day of the Lord that's going to happen for real and people are going to disappear out of their clothes. We know it's going to happen for real and Peter talks about it here in verse 8. He says, but do not forget the one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's talking back to what has happened there that you, God doesn't see time linearly like we see time. Pay attention to this. You can't ignore this. Verse nine, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason Jesus hadn't come back yet is because God wants more people to trust him as their savior, that they might be in heaven too. He's not slow in keeping his promises. 
The reason something hasn't happened in your life yet that you've been praying for is that God has something He's working on in your spirit, some surrender, some decision, some character to change you so that in the midst of the difficulty, God is working in you, even though the thing that's outside of you hasn't changed, He's seeking to change what's in you. God's not slow in keeping His promises. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. In the Cold War and the nuclear age, people said, yeah, that's the way it's going to happen, right? Boom, nuclear bombs all over the place. It's all going to. I think what God does through the resurrection is going to be so much more than what men can do through however many nuclear warheads they can throw. God has a plan. Why hasn't the day of the Lord arrived yet? Well, your answer, God wants everyone saved. He's being patient. Even though I'm sure God looks around and looks at us and He probably, if He could fold His arms and shake His head, He would go, oh, poor humans. Why do they do that? Why are they so mean to one another? Why are they so sinful? Why do they keep doing the same stuff? Why don't they learn? Kind of like parents do with children or bosses do with unwilling employees. But God has a plan. He's patient. He's warning us. He wants us to tell others. He wants us to share the gospel with others. Think about it. Who shared the gospel with you? Maybe you knew about the gospel because you grew up in church. You were fortunate enough to grow up in church. You knew the good news of Jesus, that you were a sinner, that Jesus died to save you from earth. Maybe you grow up knowing that. And maybe it wasn't just one person, but your parents told you, Sunday school teachers told you, vacation Bible school told you, songs you listened to, scriptures you read. But maybe for some of you, it was one person. You were lost and you were out there in the world and somebody said, man, here's your problem. It's sin. Fill in the blank with all the different ways. Here's the solution. It's Jesus. Fill in the blank with the one way. Jesus. God wants everyone to be saved. So the question then becomes who, if you're a believer in Jesus already, does he want you to share the gospel with? Who is it that you know? That you may be the only believer in Jesus they know. Who is it that you know that you might be the only one to have a heart to share the love of God through Jesus with them? God's got a plan to save the world. And look in the mirror because it involves you and me. We've got a part to play. Let's get to our fourth and final point this morning. Knowing these things, knowing that God has a plan, that He's patient on purpose, that He wants us to share the gospel with others. Knowing these things, how should I live life? What should change about my life? Not just that I come to church and go, oh, that was a good sermon, Pastor Aaron. I like that story about the ostrich. Did that really happen? Yes, it did. Did you really do that to Michael? Yes, I did. You could call him up and ask him. Verse 11 Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Dude, here's your challenge. 
Since the world is going to come to an end when God says so, not when we know, since the world's going to come to an end, what sort of people ought you to be? How should you live? Look, it says, end of verse 11, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Peter goes on to name a couple elements of how we ought to live. The first one is holiness. That's separation from evil and dedication to God. The second one is godliness. It's slightly different. It's related to piety and it's related to our worship. So in response to our pursuit of holiness, we pursue godliness and we exercise godliness to others. Verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What? If we're more active in sharing the gospel, the day of God will get here sooner, the day of the Lord when Christ returns. What it says right there, there's some debate about it. I'm sure there's dissertations written about it, but let's go on. The day of the Lord will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. That's verse 13, talking about heaven. Verse 14, go on. So then, dear friends... Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort. Now you got a list. Pay attention. How are we supposed to live in pursuing holiness and godliness? He's going to tell you how right here. Make every effort to be found spotless. You know spotless. Maybe you don't recognize spotless as easy as you recognize spot ed. When you walk up to a door and there's a handprint on it or some spots on it, you recognize that. When you walk up to a door and it's perfectly clean, you generally don't recognize it. You just think, oh, it's a door, it's cleaner. I'm just going to open it. You don't think anything about it. But how does Peter tell us to live? Spotless. In other words, there's not anything about our character that would catch the attention of somebody in a wrong way. Blameless. That we're without blame. Shame, disgrace, and at peace with Him. Because if you're pursuing holiness, you're pursuing godliness, if you're spotless and you're blameless, that means you're seeking a life of righteousness, so you're at peace with God. Look at what it says in verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Say that again. Which ignorant, unstable people disport, that's for sure, as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, he's bringing it home here. Here's his conclusion, verse 17, 18. Therefore, you got to know what the therefore is therefore. He's summarizing his argument for all of chapter 3. Here's what God's up to. Here's how you're supposed to be a part of it. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but he says you've got good theology. You're living lives that are seeking to demonstrate righteousness. But if you're not careful, there's also going to be false teachers that are going to come and they're going to distort all these things that I just told you in First and Second Peter, particularly about how the end's going to come here in Second Peter, Second Peter three. Go on in verse eight. But grow in the grace, verse eighteen. Excuse me. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If there's one thing you should do, one idea that summarizes everything that Peter is teaching here. 
and the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us even today is that we are to grow in the grace Him be glory both now and forever. Our question there is knowing these things, how should we live? And our answer there is that we should live as an example of God's grace. People should be able to look at your life and my life and see that we are believers in Jesus. Not because we don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls that do. Not because we go to church on Sunday. Not because we have a Jesus fish stuck on the back of our car. But because our lives are different. They should see it in our countenance, hear it in our words, our inflections, our attitudes, our actions. Everything should show it, which leads to that final point that the gospel sharing must be part of my life. Who I am and how I act should not be the end of it. Because we know that the world is going to end and because we know we've got a part to play in sharing the gospel we should be vocal in sharing our witness. Not in your face, beating people over the head with the Bible mean-spirited, but lovingly, graciously sharing a gospel witness. God loves you and Jesus has a plan for you. Now, don't put up your notes yet because you've got some homework here real quick. Have you ever wrote down a simple testimony? The four-question testimony? Four questions are this. The first one, what was my life like before Christ? Could you write that in one sentence or two sentences? What was my life like before Christ? The second question is this. How did I know I needed to trust Jesus as my Savior? How did I know? That's the second question. Who told you or what happened that led you to a place that you were ready to receive Jesus as your Savior? How do I need to know? The third question is this. How did I trust Jesus as my Savior? What actually happened? How did I trust Jesus as my Savior? In my case, my pastor preached Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I said, I can do that. I believe that. Boom. I was saved. I was 17 years old. The fourth question, what's my life like been? What has my life been like since that time? What change has Jesus made in you? If you can answer those four questions, you have a simple testimony that you can tell people anytime you need to. To tell them about how God loves you. How Jesus died for you. How the Holy Spirit guides you. God has called us to share the gospel with the world around us. I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you with these words on our mind that may be a burden to us this morning. It's not always easy in our world where we're concerned about what others think about us and where others, unfortunately, can sometimes be so judgmental, particularly towards Christianity or the Bible. Maybe more often than not, we've kept our mouths shut. Not only have we neglected to develop life-giving relationships with others, but we haven't shared the life of Jesus with them. Yeah, they know we go to church. Yeah, they know we don't do certain things because we're believers in Jesus. But we haven't said, hey, man. Tell me about your personal relationship with God. And tell me if you were to die today and you were to go to heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would they say? God, I pray that we would be willing to enter into gospel conversations. That we wouldn't give up excuses. Oh, I haven't been trained to share the gospel. 
Uh, we got a relationship with Jesus. That's all we need. Training is helpful, but a relationship is the beginning. So God, as believers in Jesus, we pray that we would be motivated to share the gospel with those in our lives, family, friends, co-workers, anyone we meet, as you give us opportunity. We also pray for those that are here today that have never trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that maybe today they've understood the gospel. Maybe today they'll make that clear and share it with us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.